0: Hello, this is Todd Freeman with Larkin Hoffman Law Firm giving an update on the Paycheck Protection Program guidance from the SBA. Typically the guidance would come out as interim rules or frequently asked questions, FAQs. In this particular case, the guidance as to applying and qualifying for loan forgiveness under the Paycheck Protection Program or PPP Came out in the form of the application for loan forgiveness, and that was issued by the SBA and publicized on May 18th. This podcast has been recorded on May 19th, so uh, anything that may come out subsequent to May 19th is not reflected here. And this podcast does not constitute legal advice by Larkin Hoffman, and it's informational and educational. And if you do have any questions, please feel free to contact us. So the loan application came out and it was very favorable in many respects and clarifying certain things that we had identified in our prior podcast as to items that we were looking for clarification. However, I will identify something that is very troubling and problematic uh, at the end of uh, presentation which unfortunately the SBA otherwise did a good job in terms of making this a very usable and manageable program from an administrative standpoint, and then couldn't resist to uh, mess that up, unfortunately. So hopefully that'll get clarified. So the identification of the eight-week covered period. So the covered period is the period where you measure your costs incurred and paid for purposes of measuring your loan forgiveness. This is to be distinguished from the period of February 15th to June 30, where you're permitted to use the loan proceeds. The loan forgiveness is simply measured by the cost experience of the borrower. And it is not required that the loan proceeds were used for these items. It's just whether these costs were incurred and paid during this period. So the eight week period starts on the day that the proceeds were made available and then continues for another 55 days. So if you look on a calendar and you know it's an eight week period, like if today is a Tuesday, a week from now is Tuesday, you do not look eight weeks out because that would constitute, when you include both Tuesdays, that would constitute an extra day. So you need to be uh, aware that the eight week covered period is the day you get that loan amount available and then add 55, not 56 days. Another thing that they made available, and curiously, this is only available for borrowers that have payroll periods not exceeding two weeks. So if you have, like Larkin Hoffman, a payroll period that is the 15th and the end of the month, that would not qualify because that could exceed two weeks, and it does exceed two weeks, and that's curious. But in any event, there is a simplified or supposedly alternate method to determine your payroll periods if you elect to do so, and that is by taking the first payroll, subsequent or coinciding with the date you got your loan proceeds, and then ending with the payroll that coincides or ends after the end of that eight week period. So that allows you to take complete payrolls, you take your payroll records, and if you elect this alternative, you don't need to fragment the last uh, payroll, which I'll discuss in a second. So that is elective. And there are various parts throughout the loan forgiveness application where if you do elect this alternative payroll period, that that alternative payroll period would apply and not the actual eight weeks under the covered period. A a major clarification and that's beneficial to borrowers is interpreting the incurred and paid requirement. So in the prior podcast, for those of you that uh, endured that, you may recall that the issue was raised Rent typically is paid in advance, so if you pay rent on June 1st, it applies for June, and your eight-week period may, extend, be, uh, may not extend for the full month. And utilities are always paid in arrears. You're billed you know, in June for uh, use of utilities in the prior month. Well, it turns out the SBA is interpreting the term of costs incurred and paid, meaning costs incurred during the eight-week period, the covered period, and costs paid during the eight-week recovery period. That means you get both of them. So what that ends up doing is it permits flexibility to enhance your loan forgiveness measurement by paying items that have not yet been incurred or were incurred in prior periods, along with the costs that were incurred. So let's say you want to prepay rent or utilities or even, even payroll, you would be able to do that and you could end up getting more than eight weeks worth of payroll for the eight-week period because you're allowed to take, so let's say on the first day of your covered period, you have a payroll. Well, that relates to services provided prior to that date, obviously. And then you have your payroll period at the end of that period, which covers that. So you're allowed to take the payroll costs for services that were performed by your employees at the end of that eight-week period, even though the actual payment is after the eight-week period. So whatever your subsequent payroll is, the only requirement being is that you actually have to pay it in the next payroll. So that is good news. And now, again, with regard to cash compensation, having more than eight weeks available, it's still subject to the aggregate maximum of that $100,000 per year limit. Which, when you prorate that for eight weeks, is $15,385 maximum per employee. There was a question as to expenses and costs paid or incurred that related to a time period that greatly exceeded the eight weeks, meaning that if you have a profit sharing plan and you were to declare a contribution by your board of directors or board of governors and then pay the entire 2020 profit sharing contribution during the eight weeks. Can you count that entire amount or would that be prorated? Well, there is nothing in here that indicates that you would not be able to take the total amount. So that continues to be an opportunity for being able to enhance your payroll costs to maximize your loan forgiveness. There's a reduction to the loan forgiveness based on drop in FTEs and based upon drop in compensation for employees where the employer cut the pay by more than 25%. As we described in the last podcast, this was stated in the statute in a a fashion that could never really work because the statute says you take total wages paid during the three months in the first quarter of 2020 and compare that to eight weeks during your covered period. Well, you're very unlikely to have any employee that's going to make as much in two months as they make in three months. So that wasn't going to work. The SBA responded, and it is clear that it's the rate of pay. So if you have an hourly employee that makes uh, $20 an hour, if you ended up cutting that pay down below $15 an hour, so more than a 25% pay cut, then you would be subject to this rule. But if you just had reduced hours and had the same rate of pay, even though the total wages you paid were less, you will not be subject to a reduction based upon a more than 25% reduction in pay. The relief from such a reduction, so if you did have employees where the pay was reduced by more than 25%, you could avoid, by resurrecting their compensation by June 30, you could avoid that reduction by resurrecting their pay. The way the statute worked is that you'd have to resurrect everybody's pay. If you have an executive that makes $300,000 a year and you cut them down to 100000 the way the statute read is that you'd have to resurrect everybody. The SBA guidance says you can ignore any employee that was employed in 2019 that made over $100,000 per year salary. You can ignore those people and you do not have to resurrect those salaries. The determination of full-time equivalents, the FTEs, that was very much uh, needing some guidance. And the SBA allows you to elect one of two methods. And whichever method you use, you have to apply that method throughout all of the FTE measurements. How many FTEs did you have in January and February of this year? How many FTEs from February 15th to June 30th of last year? How many FTEs on average did you have during the covered period? All those have to be done on a consistent basis. So either you take the average number of hours per week that were paid and divide by 40. So they're not taking actual activity. So this this paves the way, which would have been nice for borrowers coming in. So let's say you're a restaurant and you're closed under a governor's order or however you're closed, and you continue to pay your employees as if they're working full time. Well, it wasn't known until now that you could count them as an FTE, just by paying them for not working. Now the measurement is not activity, but it is on the basis that you are paying them. But they use a 40 hour week. So if somebody has a 30 hour week, they're gonna be a 0.75 FTE. And if they work 40 hours or more, they're a 1.0 FTE. So one individual cannot be more than a 1.0. If they work an 80 hour week, then they're still a 1.0. The alternative method that you can adopt is to not have to track each employee's hours and activity to determine that FTE or what you're paying them, but for an employee that works at least 40 hours per week, they're a 1.0, and for everybody else, they're a 0.5. So that allows you, if you want, to avoid having to do the 0.8 and the 0.75 and the 0.6 and so on, and you can just simplify it and have anyone under 40 hours a week be 0.5. The issue in an FAQ came out a week or so ago as far as rehiring and an exception to the reduction by a reduction FTEs. So this is the guidance in the loan application that came out on May 18th is a little different than the FAQ because the FAQ stipulated that an offer to a former employee had to be at least of amount of wages and benefits that they exist at the time they left. This guidance in the SBA loan contains no such condition. So are these read side by side? Does that condition still exist? We don't know for sure, but if you wanna be safe, you would make uh, an offer to rehire someone at the same wage and benefit level. So for the following situations, you're permitted to ignore the drop in FTEs. Now this does not apply if you ended up hiring a new employee to to fill a vacancy, all right? So if you had a former employee that rejected a good faith written offer to be rehired, then that slot for that employee that was vacated when they left or terminated, you do not have to subtract your FTE count during the covered period, the eight week period. Likewise, if you had an employee fired for cause, or an employee voluntarily resigned, you do not have to reduce the FTEs. You can, you can assume that they continued to be FTEs during the eight-week period. As far as reduction in hours affecting the FTE, which would be under the actual method for measuring FTEs, if hours were reduced at the request of the employee, so let's say someone's a 40-hour-a-week employee, they have to homeschool their children. They said, can I work half time?" And you agree to that request. If it was based on their request, you can still count them as a 1.0 FTE, even though you're only paying them as a 0. 0.5. And so that was a positive development as well. In terms of applying those reductions to the amount of loan forgiven based upon reduced wages in excess of 25% or uh, lower FTEs. We did not know which one you apply first because one is dollar for dollar based on the cut in compensation and the other is a ratio that you apply as a proportional reduction in the amount of loan forgiven based on the proportional reduction in FTEs. So this has been clarified in the loan application, which is beneficial and advantageous to the borrower. So the first reduction, if both apply to you, the first reduction is going to be dollar for dollar on the amount of compensation that you reduced employees during the eight-week period. Once you have that reduction, you'll have a net amount. Then you apply that ratio on the FTE reduction. This is advantageous because now that ratio is being applied to a smaller number, which is a smaller uh, reduction in the loan forgiveness. In the loan forgiveness measurement, there is, uh, and this came out in a rule versus the statute, but there was dictated that no more than 25% of the loan forgiveness can be attributable to non-payroll costs. So non-payroll costs that count would be like rent, utilities, interest on secured debt, uh, and so on. What we didn't know is how they were going to measure that. And what the SBA did in the loan application is they flipped it instead of being a 25% non-payroll cost limit on the amount forgiven, they flipped it to 75% payroll test. And that's very important because now what would happen is if you had, for instance, uh, $750,000 of eligible payroll costs to qualify for loan forgiveness, then your maximum loan forgiveness would be a third more of that, such that the non-payroll costs is one fourth of the total. So a third of 750,000 is 250,000, and that would make a total, a gross up of a million dollars of loan that can be forgiven, provided that you had at least 250,000 of rent, utilities, and interest. So that was a positive development. The last development, And the last part of the guidance is uh, unfortunate because it creates an impossible situation. There are new certifications that were included. You may recall that you had to make certifications when you applied for the loan itself. During that process, one was a good faith certification that the loan was necessary to support ongoing operations. Now, that was a political football since the loans were funded. Some high-profile large companies got loans, then they paid it back. Then Treasury Secretary Mnuchin said, if you didn't make this uh, certification in good faith, you didn't really need the loan, we're going to throw you in jail. Then they said, okay, we won't throw you in jail if you give the money back by May 7th, which they extended to May 14th. Then, ultimately, everyone was freaking out because it's so subjective as to necessity and to what extent you take into account availability of other credit facilities or other investors and or rich owners that could make capital contributions. Nobody knew you know, how you really would determine it. The current rule, the last rule that came out on this now, is that if you have a loan with your affiliates that aggregate less than $2 million dollars, they don't even care. You could have had a totally false certification. You could have defrauded the government. They're not going to go after you and challenge you on that certification, good faith certification, and necessity. If you're over $2 million, $2 million or more, then it's fair game to look at it. But if they determine that you did not have a reasonable basis upon which to make that certification, then the consequence is you pay the money back immediately. It's not that you go to jail or you defraud the government, there's no criminal exposure. So that was a very positive development. I give you that background because the SBA had successfully navigated uh, on a very securitous path to resolve that very uh, subjective certification. And then for whatever reason, they felt that they needed to throw a wrench in the works on this whole loan forgiveness. If you look at page four of the loan forgiveness application, there's a series of places to initial, just like on the loan application, that the borrower is certifying by initially next to each one. Now, the only one that is different and problematic is the first one. And the first one says that the dollar amount for which forgiveness is requested does not exceed $15,385. It's a four-part certification. The first three are fine, to, for the most part, I'll comment on one of them, but, but the main problem is that there is no situation where the amount of a loan that's being forgiven based on all the calculations and all the rules, there's no way that that is not going to exceed $15,385. And it's only anyone's guess as to what the SBA was getting at with this, but they did not word it correctly. And the problem that everyone's gonna have now, unless they fix this, is that if you make a false certification, which of course in the fifth certification they remind you is subject to criminal penalties and imprisonment, et cetera. If you make a false certification, then you're subject to criminal penalties. The issue is if you catch this, don't make that certification because it can't be true. Do you get booted out and will the lender reject all of your loan forgiveness? And so I've made inquiries this morning with some financial institutions to point this out and see what they're going to do. Hopefully the SBA will clarify it, but at least the way things stand now, borrowers are somewhat in an untenable situation. I don't think you can make that certification. Maybe you initial it, but cross out that last bullet point. Who knows if that boots you out or you initial each of the bullet points separately. I don't know. So that unfortunately is the cloud in a very silver lining Overall, on this guidance, the other one is a little bit problematic and troublesome, but not severely so. For whatever reason, in that first bullet point in that certification, you are certifying that the dollar amount for which the forgiveness is requested was used to pay costs that are eligible for forgiveness, and then they put in a parenthetical. They say payroll costs to retain employees. So doesn't just say payroll costs. So does that mean there's a requirement that the reason you got the loan and the reason you expended and incurred those costs was to retain employees versus just operating your business? So it's it's a gratuitous statement and we don't understand if that creates a requirement or whatever, because when they go on to talk about interest, they don't say interest to avoid a foreclosure or default. When they talk about rent, they don't say rent to avoid an eviction. And when they talk about utilities, they don't say you pay the utilities to avoid having the utility shut off. So it's unfortunate. Who knows what's going to happen. You're a lot safer though making that certification because there's, you know, room for interpretation. It's that other one I mentioned where it can't exceed the 15385 Now it doesn't say that, but that's when you read it, that's in effect uh, what it means. Uh, well, not what it means, but that's in effect what it says. Who knows what they mean? So with that, good luck on navigating these rules, applying for your loan forgiveness and applying your loan proceeds. And if you have any questions again, feel free to contact us. Thank you.